0: Amy Hall, and you're listening to Stand to Reasons, hashtag STRask podcast. Greg, welcome.
1: Thank you, Amy. All
0: right. Let's start with a Amos. Qu- <laughs> let's start with a question from... Famous
1: Amos. <laughs> Amy's got I a know, following. I think,
0: I think I've said this before, but it's so funny that my bosses have called me Amos and Famous Amos without you even knowing that my previous boss called me famous amos. Oh, no kidding. And without knowing that my mom called me Amos Obadiah and you're the only ones <laughs>
1: who call me
0: Amos. It's just very funny to be. Yeah,
1: but you you weren't famous when your old boss called you that, but you are <laughs> you you have a following and deservedly so in my view.
0: Well, thank you, Greg. All right, so this question comes from the supreme fancy man.
1: The supreme fancy man. <laughs> the
0: supreme fancy man. All right.
1: Fancy man? Yes. Huh. <laughs> uh, does he have a daughter named Fancy Nancy?
0: I'm I wondering. don't know. All right. Uh, Twitter's a fun place. Okay. How do we determine what books are the divinely inspired Word of God and what ones are not? I have heard of books such as the Gospel of Thomas, which are not in the Bible, and was curious what criteria were used to determine this.
1: Well, Well, nobody thinks that the—even the advocates of the Gospel of Thomas thinks that the Gospel of Thomas is divinely inspired. All of those people reject the idea of divine inspiration. The question for them is, which books legitimately record the the views of the primitive church, the earliest church, okay? And in their mind, the, the person of Jesus and the doctrines of the early church were really a result of a political battle, and one group won out and the other group didn't and the group that didn't win out (laughs) were the Gnostics, all right? Uh, Thomas is a Gnostic gospel. And by the way, um, people interested in this question ought to read the Gnostic gospel, and what you're going to find is an odd collection of sayings. You're not going to get you're not going to get a kind of full-throated characterization of the person and work of Christ, even the life of Christ. You're going to get a lot of odd sayings, and some of them are very odd—a uh, deprecation of women, for example—and Jesus performing miracles when he was a kid and making clay birds and having them fly away and stuff like that. Uh, the problem with those uh, those claimants to be the more legitimate characterizations of the human person Jesus of Nazareth views and the things he did, is that these are all written very late. And uh, it is very clear that uh, the the later uh those that that the ideas that they represent came late too Gnosticism late first a century john addresses some of that in a, a little bit so does paul seem to make reference in some places but remember this this neoplatonism this philosophy began to Get involved in the church in little bitty ways, and by the second stage became second s- century became full blown. But what you can see is people who we know were disciples of John and those who is uh polycarp and uh and then then the ones who are disciples of Polycarp um who wrote against heresies i'm trying to think of his name right now. Uh, anyway, the title of his book is against heresies, and he's critiquing Gnosticism and also promoting the classical understanding of early Christianity. Well, this doesn't come just from books; people arbitrary, arbitrarily, arbitrarily. Chose because they like the theology. This was the it, it. It's embedded in the history of the writers of that time in a Christian tradition. It's uh, J. Warner Wallace tracks this too. He calls it the. Uh, he has some kind of detective term that he used to describe the um, uh, how how th- this evidence of the early first century is carried on and, and acknowledged and reaffirmed by subsequent writers that are all connected. Uh, he calls a chain of chain of uh, custody. I think is what he calls it. So, um, so, so, with regards to the doctrines um, of classical Christianity, with re- compared to Gnosticism, <clears throat> we know that Gnosticism was a later addition, and uh, it's not just a matter of politics. Um, this is what th- there is a, a a vast amount of records and the from the gospel writers and and the, uh, the people like the ap- Apostle Paul who wrote about these things too and he wrote early and uh, the the Pauline epistles um, are 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 at least a, a certain body of them are on uh, are not challenged by critical scholars they are unquestionably Pauline Galatians for example Romans another example and these give a very very crisp clear straightforward early characterization of the person and the work of Christ okay and then I'll come to the gospel of thomas all right and and others that are called pseudepigrapha uh, or uh, anti-legomena these are just bad <laughs> No, pseudo, false, phony, anti, against, and against the word. So these are things that the people at the time, the church at the time, recognized as impostors and wrote about it. And it wasn't just their declaration. You could see the content um, is very different from the content of the most primitive testimony of Jesus, the earliest testimony of Christ. So I'm speaking mostly now to the issue of why not the Gospel of Thomas and why the other Gospels, and there there's the reason I just offered you. There is um, there's the broader issue. The canon um, is is uh, is hinted at in that piece, and I would just say that the canon was largely uh, recognized. No one group said, okay, we're going to decide these books are in the Bible. This is what Rome claims, and it's just not true. There was no Roman Catholic Church in the first, second, third century, all right? By the fourth century, you have the Council of Nicaea, Constantine called that, and every group of Christians, every district, if you would, sent two representatives, and that was true of Rome. Rome didn't prevail over that. They had nothing to do with this. It was Constantine that was the one who called it. and He had no legal authority, no theological authority. He was getting them all together, so they quit fighting about the Arian issue. And, uh, and, and, and Rome just had—so there was no Roman Catholic Church using it. By that time, the, the canon was already established, <clears throat> excuse me, for all intents and purposes— and it was established because but mostly because people recognized that Paul and those who are if a writing had apostolic origin whether it was Paul or Peter or John and it was clearly so and there was a there was a history of that that was acknowledged by the people who subsequently lived and wrote about the history of that and these generations of disciples who taught the very same thing that we find in those Gospels, and who actually quote those Gospels. This gives us a very solid foundation for understanding that those who Jesus commissioned personally, which would include Paul, spoke with his authority. And that's the, that was the, the, the basic foundational issue of which books should be in the canon. After they all died, you don't have apostolic authority anymore. And I know the New Apostolic Reformation might be surprised to find out that's the case, but they died, and they're part of the foundation according to Ephesians chapter 2, and that's the foundation, that's not the rest of the house. foundation was laid by Christ and the prophets and the apostles, and then the rest was built on. That's what we've been doing for 2,000 years. In any event, um, the, the, the apostles had a unique role, and the early Christians understood that, and there is no, there is no argument that the so-called Gospel of Thomas actually was—well, there is no evidence that the so-called Gospel of Thomas was actually authored by Thomas. Thomas was a disciple of Christ, All right, we know what Jesus taught because of John who taught about Jesus and others who taught about Jesus. And that teaching about Jesus does not match the so-called Gospel of Thomas. That's the Gnostic Christ. Read it. You'll see. It's just—it's weird. By the way, there are some verses in the Gospel of Thomas that are in the canonical Gospels, okay? Uh, But there's a whole bunch of other stuff that's just odd. And, look, Jesus was odd in many ways, but Jesus always sounded like Jesus, you know? And uh, some things are hard to understand. Got it. These are not just hard to understand. They don't sound like Jesus, and they're weird.
0: You start to get a feel as you're reading the New Testament for... what feels like it really is Jesus, what feels like it really is New Testament theology. And even if you can't put your finger on it right away, you can recognize when things sound foreign. Yeah. Jesus they,
1: Jesus had a voice. He mm-hmm. had a particular, just like you have a voice and I have a voice. We both have ways of characterizing ideas. Jesus did too.
0: And even beyond Jesus, the, the, the apostles, the way they wrote. That's right. Uh, one thing I've discovered, I've been reading through the New Testament over and over and Starting to notice more and more how the different, how Peter will reflect Paul in certain places and how their ideas mesh together, all Mm -hmm. of them. And it's, it's kind of amazing to see. It's also pretty amazing to know that there was never huge, a huge fight in the church over the books of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Like, Mm -hmm. why, why is it that all, you know, the church was spread out, but they agreed, that, and certainly there were, people had different ideas, slightly different at the beginning, but there was no big fight over what was right. to be included mm-hmm. up until you get to the Reformation. Yeah, but,
1: th- there you go, right, with the Roman Catholic mm-hmm. Church and the Protestants in the, and, uh, right, exactly. But That's like 1,600 years later. And,
0: and just to point out, that was where they wanted to add books into the canon. It wasn't that the Protestants were taking books out, Absolutely. just to make that clear.
1: Absolutely, that's right, that's right.
0: But it, it's what's amazing to see is that they could recognize the inspiration of these books, and there was no huge council to there, fight it out.
1: There was it was no um, ecclesiastical authority that declared the canon as such it was the christians who recognized it as such and acknowledged it as such it doesn't mean that there weren't leaders that weighed in and there were a couple of there were some books like the um like the decay or uh shepherd of hermes or some you know some of these or, or also, uh, the Book of Hebrews. You know, there was some question about that because they didn't know who wrote it. Wrote it. So, the question of apostolic authorship was, because uh, was up in the air a little bit with that. But the, um, but the, the, the large majority of the books were commonly acknowledged because of their apostolic mm-hmm. um, input, or undergirded, like Mark wrote uh, as a tutor of, as being tutored by Peter. Um, and Eusebius makes this clear. So you've got you, you've got uh, you've got that apostolic foundation to all of those books, and and the times when there was there was some there was some discussion. Uh, you had the prolegomena, you got the antilegomena, which is the, I think the ones that they debated, which is a very small number, and then you got the pseudepigrapha, which is the false writings like the Gospel of Thomas. And
0: at some point, they did lay these things out and make lists because they wanted people to know which. Books sure. they should they should die for <laughs> right well the second
1: century they had the Miratorium Canon which is probably the 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 late in the second century so you know this isn't fifth sixth century where Rome is gaining ascendancy this is this is the the Christians in general that have acknowledged this and so you have this. Characterization that is put together not by a person speaking with authority. This is the canon, but this is the these are the books that the Christians acknowledge and, and recognize as authoritative.
0: Okay, here's a somewhat related question. This one comes from Callie. Callie. How, Callie, how do you explain inerrancy to a, a skeptic? And I know you've talked before, Greg, about not defending inerrancy. I, I'm assuming that explain specifically means explain rather than defend, but if you want to respond to both of those ideas.
1: Well, I, I would say uh, to define it, um, different people have defined it in different ways, but th- the essential is that the words of Scripture are the exact words that God intended to communicate, so God is the ultimate author, and um, the way john or rather, Paul describes it in 2 Timothy, is that they were theonusto, they were God-breathed. This was the out-breathing of God through the divine authors so that they would uh, write exactly what he wanted them to write. Now, if the words are God's words, ultimately, and God can't err, then the Scripture can't err. Now, uh, So that's where the inerrancy concept comes from. Uh, if uh, if God can't err then the scriptures can't err okay now of course this applies only to the originals because in the copying there can be mistakes and then it's our job in an academic way to try to restore the original um, as much as possible and of course this has been done and we know this through the through the literary science and I say science because it's a very precise, kind of methodology, even though there's some judgment calls that have to be made, of textual criticism, which has allowed us to restore um, the you know the original to a very, very high degree of confidence, even when we have different variations. The vast majority of variations are just spelling errors, so that has no bearing on restoring the original. And things that sometimes are real questions we, about, we don't know which one's which, it turns out that the the passage or the element is largely inconsequential, so it doesn't have any theological bearing either. Inerrancy just means that the Scriptures are without error in what they affirm. Without error in what they affirm. And if the the words are God's words and God can't err, then the Scripture can't err either.
0: So if Callie did mean defend, then would you— how would you, if you would, make a case for inerrancy?
1: Well, my general approach to this is to ask the question is not to look at every single line and try to prove everything single line to the satisfaction of a, a skeptic, because it's not possible to do that with every single line, okay? And generally, what you do with any. Uh, uh, confidence in any authority is you establish the authority of the individual and then trust what they have to say about the thing their authority's on. And you might cross-examine a little bit here and there or whatever, but, but you, you don't demand that they have external proof for every sentence that they offer. This is just not possible, certainly impractical. And then no one could be trusted as an authority, yet most of what we know we know on the basis of authority. Almost everything, everything we know from before we lived, everything we know in the future, like, uh, you know, planes arriving and taking off at certain times, like mine will in the morning, for example. This, we, it, Everything we know about things that we've never seen, places we've never been, about things we don't haven't studied personally. All, virtually every scientific thing we think we know, we know because someone else told us an authority. So, this is a very ordinary way of knowing. Okay, and um, so my question when I come to the Bible is, what kind of book is the Bible? Is it a book by God about man? And when I say by God, I'm acknowledging the agency as human beings. But if it's by God, then God is the one who is ultimately responsible, not man. So is God the main author, or is it just a human book by man about God. Okay, that's the two categories. And then we go ahead and look at some characteristics of the book, and I'll just give you one, fulfilled prophecy. If there is bona fide fulfilled prophecy in Scripture, that is, a specific prophecy was made at a time that antedates its actual fulfillment, and it was fulfilled in the precise way that the prophecy was made, well, this is evidence of supernatural. Now, this book claims to be God's book, and it does have fulfilled prophecy, demonstrable. And so this is way, a way of kind of qualifying the authoritative nature of the Bible. And so if we have a couple of touchstones there, and actually I have a talk in which I give six different touchstones. And um, the, the the talk is called the, the Bible Has God Spoken, or Has God Spoken? I don't know which one it is, maybe... The longer, or shorter, whatever, you can find it. It's str.org. And um if that's <clears throat> excuse me, if we are able to, if we look at these six characteristics that defy a naturalistic explanation and are better accounted for by a supernatural origin of scripture, we have then largely established the Bible as the first kind of book by God to men and not the second kind of book by men about God. And and so then, if it is by God, even though I don't answer every single line, um, then I have reason to believe that it is also without error, and that which it affirms. Now, sometimes then we read things and we say, that doesn't look right. Well, it, it might be a scribal error, it might be some change, and you look at other manuscripts, you see, well, this might be an exaggeration, it might be, a, there, it might be technical Difficulties with the translation that will account for that. Other times, it may be that we are reading, we are trying to read with a kind of literal precision something that was not meant to be read that way. Um, Just, I think Genesis 1 is an example of that. Um, It's obvious to me that this is not, it's not talking about um, solar days because there's no solar until the fourth day. It's not talking about. 24-hour segments of time because it has a morning and evening, and a morning and evening every day. Well, there's no morning and evening without a sun, you know, so it's another problem. And But it does seem like there's a poetic arrangement. So some of these things that are apparent contradictions— can be resolved with new archaeological discoveries, a closer look at the text, an understanding of the culture uh, of the time. Uh, They go up to Jerusalem. Wait a minute. They were in Samaria. How could they go up to Jerusalem? Jerusalem south. Well, they're not looking at a map. They're talking about elevation. (laughs) Huh? It's elevation. Jerusalem is high. They're going up to Jerusalem. But notice the anachronism, we're reading a 20th century, 21st century sensibility into a 1st century document, and then we're misunderstanding it. Those are all strategies for resolving apparent contradictions if, in fact, or apparent difficulties if, in fact, the the Scripture is uh, inspired by God and therefore inerrant.
0: The point is, if if you have the bigger picture understood and you've made a case for the bigger picture, as you said, um, knowing who God is and what the nature of Scripture is, then we shouldn't jettison the idea of inerrancy because of an anomaly that we can't answer. Right. Because there are a lot of things that we don't have all the information for. So once we have a solid reasons for thinking that the Bible really is inspired and inerrant, when we come across something we don't understand, we should first assume that there's something we don't understand That's and keep thinking point. about it.
1: exactly, and there's a there was a, a long list of apparent discrepancies in the scripture, a lot coming from the old testament and um and then, as time has gone on, those have been resolved because archaeological discoveries um demonstrate the the reconciliation of actual history with what the scripture says.
0: Well, thank you, Greg and Callie and Supreme Fancy Man. We hope to hear from you again. And if you have a question, send that through our website or through Twitter with the hashtag STRask. This is Amy Hall and Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason.